Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to America's Best Baseball Podcast. We take you behind the scenes in and around Major League Baseball with former big league manager Kevin Kennedy and veteran baseball broadcaster Rich Herrera. This is the only weekly podcast hosted by someone like Kennedy who played, coached, and managed in pro ball. So we can take you into the manager's office for a real insider's view of baseball alongside a veteran baseball broadcaster like Herrera who has covered the game from coast to coast. So let's talk some baseball with your hosts. Here they are. The skipper, Kevin Kennedy, and Rich Herrera. Welcome, everybody, to America's Best Baseball Podcast as we talk about Game 2 of the World Series, get you ready for Game 3. Kevin Kennedy, Rich Herrera. Skip, uh, I was listening this morning, two radio stations, WEEI in Boston. They were talking about David Price, MVP, listening to 570 LA in Los Angeles, and they were trying to figure out what happened to the Dodgers' offense. Yeah, Rich, it's a little bit early. Uh, I know the Boston Red Sox fans, and they're very good fans. I worked there a couple of years, as you know. Uh, but I grew up in L.A. I'm obviously a Dodger fan. I work for the Dodgers. I love the L.A. fans. I think they get uh, blasted uh, for, for the wrong reasons. Like, they come late, and they leave early. They come in the third, and they leave in the seventh. Let's just can't get it. You can't get anywhere in the traffic in L.A. Yeah, yeah. You know, I live 23 miles from Dodger Stadium, and it takes me an hour and 45 minutes to get there on a, on a Friday, you know. And so you have to leave really early. Uh, in the afternoon to, to work a seven o'clock game, you got to leave about one o'clock, and uh, that's that's the problem with L.A. and the fans. And there's more and more people that live in L.A. now, so it's not because the fans don't love baseball; um, they just they just want to be able to get home at a decent hour so they can put their kids to bed. <laughs> that's that's the only thing. I but, was driving uh, through L.A. on Sunday, and it was eight o'clock at night on Sunday night, and we were in bumper to bumper traffic. Uh, it took us forever to get home. Yeah, no, it's it's unbelievable. And even after night games, when I I would work uh, and do Dodger talk uh, after the after I did the game, I'd actually I'd have to stay another hour and forty minutes and do Dodger talk. Even at twelve midnight, believe it or not, uh, a lot of times they're working on the freeways. It still would take me over an hour to go 22, 23 miles. So it's just a long day. And if you work there, it's a long day. But if you're a fan. And you got a family with a couple of uh, young kids. That's the reason they leave early. But I got to tell you, uh, they still draw over three and a half million fans every single year. And uh, I'll take those fans any day. But getting back to the Red Sox for just one second. Right. Uh, David Price pitched great. Obviously, the last two starts. Uh, this start uh, last night was, was very good. No doubt about it. But... Um, it's not over. It's two games. You know, it's not over in a two-game series. And everybody's picked the Red Sox. A lot of analysts picked the Red Sox in five. That may come to fruition. That may be true. But I wouldn't discount this Dodger team. You know, this is a, this is a Dodger team that's very, very resilient. I don't think and people understand their resiliency unless you see them play on a daily basis. That's the whole key. Remember, I remember when they were 16 and 26 and the same analysts that were picking the Red Sox and Yankees and 
the Astros to win it all or the Cleveland Indians and Judge discounting and the Stanton, Dodgers. And there's no way you can stop the Yankees. Give them the trophy right they're now. They're done. Yeah, they're done. What a team. Uh, most home runs in the history of baseball. They'll crush and, uh, everybody. Those guys are monsters. They'll both hit, you know, 55 home runs. And, and Sanchez, you can't stop him. Gregorius has turned out to be a power hitter. Great pitching. And then you go to the Astros. They got the best starting pitching staff in the history of the game on paper. You know, things like that. That's why on you got to paper. You got to play the game between the lines. And these two games were not blowout games. I mean, the the three run home run game one that Nunez hit made it, it opened it up and made it very comfortable for Kimbrell at the end of the game with a, with a big lead, a four-run lead. But uh, last night's game uh, was a close game. You know, uh, they got the three runs there. The bases loaded walk, tied the game at 2-2. And then the uh, J.D. Martinez, by design, stayed inside a ball in and, and drove wow, it to right field. What a field. great piece of hitting. And that was by intent. People, I, I hear people that uh, that hate the Red Sox say, well, that was just a bloop. Uh, base no, hit. you saw where great he kept pitch. his hands, right? That was by design. That's that he 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 knows exactly what he wants to do with his hands. He wants to keep that bat in the plane of the ball as long as he ha- can. He pulled his hands in to get some barrel on that pitch that was running in on him, and then he was and able right, to muscle it out. And he muscled it out. And by the way, the Dodger outfield was playing way too deep in that situation. You don't worry about the double off the wall, or the or the home run ball. Or going back to, to to take a home run away, you worry about a, a game winning base hit that can put the the ball club ahead. The the Red Sox and because that, that's if, what if, they do. If it gets over your head, they're going to score. If it drops right. in front of you, if, if it gets over your head, if you cheat in, um, Joe Madden used to do this with BJ Upton in Tampa Bay. If you cheat in, I'm going to rob more base hits in front of you, and if you hit it over my head, it's going to go to the wall anyway. Absolutely. If if they played in and J.D. Martinez hit a long fly ball and let's say Puig went back to the track and, and caught it, that's one run. That's the go-ahead run. If it goes over his head for a double, okay, then it's three runs. But as it is, you play no singles defense there. You don't play no doubles defense there. You play no doubles defense and play deep when you've got the lead by one run and it's the bottom of the ninth and they got a runner at first base and and maybe there's two outs, and you don't want the, a ball to split the gap where the runner at first can score. That's different. Uh, then you don't want to play shallow because a ball hit over your head will t- tie the game. But I was shocked that Puig was as deep as he was because you know with his speed, he's played gold glove caliber right field these days. He may not be quite as good as Mookie Betts, but he's close. And um, I just was surprised that he was so deep. And as soon as that ball was hit, I knew it was a base hit. I know the ballpark there. Remember, it's 380 feet to right field. That is a deep right field, though, field there. So he was playing, I'm going to say it was about, he was probably playing 360 feet away, where normally at Dodger Stadium, he wouldn't be playing uh, that deep. He'd be playing 340 feet away. That's 20 feet difference right there, and that was a difference in the ball. And that's a difference of the ball dropping in front of him. To, exactly. me, it, to me, it seemed like a ball game that had uh, tipping points. And so far in this series, the tipping points have gone to the to the Boston Red Sox. Not that the, the Dodgers have, have given anything up, but just the little things like that ball falling in front of Yasiel Puig or a home run uh, that that's run down here or a ball in the gap, I should say, run down, or a strikeout where somebody goes up the ladder. Because both teams have had opportunities to win this ball game the Red Sox have cashed in the Dodgers have yet to do so 
Yeah, and the fact that they got the two-run lead, that was a big big uh, hit right there because it makes you, as a reliever of Aldi or whoever the case may be, it just gives you a little extra breathing room where, as I always talk about, it gives a reliever a chance to make a mistake. Uh, there's margin for error there. If you had a one-run lead, you got to be almost perfect. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, if you got a two-run lead, okay, if the first guy gets on, you know that the tie-and-run comes up to the plate, not the go-ahead run. So. You breathe uh, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, you can exhale a little bit. I mean, it's still close, but I can I can tell you as a former manager in those situations, when you have a a crooked number lead versus a one run lead, you you feel a lot better, and that's why when Nunez hit the home run in game one, uh, they might have won that game, you know, by one run. But when you got a three run homer to open it up to a four run lead, and you're late in the ball game in the seventh inning there you really exhale and feel pretty good about your chances the way the bullpen's been pitching late for the Boston Red Sox. It's one of those games, I think, that the box score is not indicative of what the game is. Because you'll see it in football. Somebody will win 48-14, to to 14, but they score three garbage touchdowns at the end of the game to make it feel like a blowout when it really wasn't. Yeah, exactly right. You know, they're up two games to none. They won them, absolutely. But it's not like the Dodgers aren't there with them. They're right. They're right with them. Uh, in fact, when they got the lead uh, in game two, uh, I thought that was uh, the difference right there. That's, I mean, when they got the lead in game seven against Milwaukee, I thought they're never going to give that back. I thought the same thing last night, and I say that because of the way Ryu was pitching. I thought he would give them a good six innings of shutout ball because uh, he has an excellent curve, good cutter, changeup has been lights out this year, and I thought he had the same command, like I said, there that he had in about 12 straight starts before the, a couple of games in the playoffs here. So I thought he was all the way back to being uh, the guy that started the first game of the divisionals, by the way, that was selected by Dave Roberts in the front office over Clayton Kershaw. I thought he was that good last night. So it really surprised me when he did. He ended up walking Ben Attendee, but that's a credit to the Boston Red Sox. I mean, Ben Attendee, uh, lefty on lefty. Uh, yeah, he can strike out against lefties on a swerving uh, slider who, who doesn't who can't but he battled his tail off one time he chased a curveball in the dirt and struck out the next at bat he made the adjustment he worked the count full fouled off a good curveball just got a piece of it and then uh, Ryu tries to throw another one and went way wide and almost threw it to the backstop as a matter of fact and uh, and Ben Attendee got ball four and that was a big big walk because what it did it didn't give Madsen a chance to make a mistake. He had to come in and be pinpoint with his control. And as he said, uh, he wasn't really warm in either game. He wasn't loose enough. He didn't have that good feeling because of the cold weather. And I, I tell you, and I said this before game one, the outfield defense, the, the nooks and crannies out there, the triangle in right center, the lack of foul lines as far or, or foul territory. Williams, um, Williamsburg with that short little fence of the bullpen. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Uh, there were plays that weren't made because of the of the wall. And you know, JD Martinez's double in game one um, that would have been caught by a center fielder. Might have been caught, maybe not. But um, Kike Hernandez really didn't have any idea where the ball was. The ball did not hit the wall. It short hopped the ball in the triangle area. And that ball. There's a garage that, door out there that it could take yeah, a while. Yeah, absolutely. And then Peterson, I mean, because the sidewall there is so high and there's only about a foot between the foul line and the sidewall, Peterson wasn't quite sure where he was. And that's a ball, the one Ben Attendee blooped in in that three run inning in game one. That's, the, that's a ball he normally catches. And in of Dr. Course, Stadium, it does every day. Absolutely. So. 
Um, I knew the elements would favor the Boston Red Sox just because they play 81 games there and they have the best outfield defense in Major League Baseball. But as far as game planning and you know how you want to position your guys in execution, now, that's a little bit different. The Dodgers always play their outfield deep. That started a couple of years ago when Jock Peterson was a starting center fielder. They would play him, you know, from the front office. They wanted him playing extremely deep. And they wanted to take away the extra base hit. And now they're having everybody play deep. And You're seeing you don't balls play, fall in front. You don't play deep in every situation. You play according to, to what's going on during a ball game. I, I, do, want to be on, I do want to be fair with the, the Dodgers uh, outfielders and the field out there because you managed at Fenway Park. You managed the Boston Red Sox. You know right. what it's like to be out there. I mean, listen, I've heard uh, Mike Greenwald and Jim Rice. I've heard uh, Carl Crawford. I've heard a lot of outfielders talk about that even if you play there every day, you're still not sure which way the balls are going to carry, they carry in that ballpark because it is, has such odd dimensions and so many nooks and crannies and little things well first of all that wall that 37 38 foot high wall has so many dents in it that jim rice told me that when he and fred lynn were playing together when fred was playing center going back into the 75 uh of course he was hurt during the 75 i think series but um but even in those years when they were playing together both of them great players and dwight evans was playing right field a fabulous right field that they had to work so hard on knowing where the biggest dents were in that wall. And they knew if a ball hit left center and it hit to a certain spot, they knew exactly that the ball was going to carry them back towards center field. So if Fred Lynn overran it, Jim Rice knew to keep on sprinting. He never held up. He kept going, and he actually became the center fielder upon retrieving the ball and vice versa. If the ball hit to straightaway left field and hit a certain spot in the wall, um, same type of thing. If Jim Rice, you know, went one way, Freddie Lynn knew to back him up and cover it a different way. If it hits that um, ladder, that, if it hits that ladder out there, you don't know where it's going to go. Well, that's a different story. If it hits the ladder, but I'm talking about the dents. They right, knew right. where every, every dent was, and now, of course, that was many years ago. And there's so many more out there. And um, uh, it's just an interesting place to play. And at right field, you hit one near the pesky pole. It looks like a pinball swinging around that, that uh, short fence out there all the way around to the 380 mark if you don't know how to play it correctly. So um, that didn't come into play in these two games, but certainly um, the depth of the ballpark and the balls that we've already talked about did come into play. And I thought last night uh, having Puig that deep really, really surprised me. I always, there, in my mind's eye, I know I see this a couple times a year, that uh-oh moment for an outfielder where he's running back at a ball in the left field that's going over his head towards the green monster. And then he gets to that point of no man's land. Do I go run up against the wall and hope that I'm going to catch it or that's going to fall before it hits the wall? Or is it going to carry him over my head off the top of that wall and back over my head? So if I keep running towards that wall, there's times where I get to that point where I better give up and start backpedaling to figure out that carom. And it's one of those uh-oh moments that I wonder what it would be like to be in his shoes. Well, what you have to do if you're the visiting club, you've got to get the pitchers out of there in left field. You've got to get everybody out of there. You've got to put your starting left fielder out there, your starting center fielder out there, and you've got to take balls off the bat. And your starting right fielder as well. But really the monster, playing the monster, it can be really difficult for all those reasons you just said. So you've got to... You've got to take balls off the bat that day in, in uh, batting practice. If you don't, you're making a big mistake. You're mailing it in because it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, you don't know if it's going to just uh, scrape that wall on certain balls that are hit. you got to know how the wind is playing that night. It, it, it swirls differently depending on the weather that night. 
a lot of times balls will be crushed to right field and the wind will slightly be blowing in. It'll knock down a, a sure home run. Uh, you saw Mookie Betts' ball last night uh, got knocked down. Uh, we we I, both thought that was off the bat to uh, yeah. be a bomb. And I had a prediction, I said with you, just texting back and forth, I said I had a feeling Betts was going deep tonight, and I thought when he hit it, I thought that was his moment to go deep, and I think they, he thought it was too, but he, <laughs> but he, knows, he knows the place well enough that he kept running hard and made sure he got to second base. Because I've seen a lot of visiting guys hit a ball like that, think right. it's gone and get a single out of it because they weren't running or get thrown out because all of a sudden they go, oh, my gosh, it's, it scraped the wall. I got to hustle to get to second, and they get thrown out, especially with a guy like Ben Attendee out, out there. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Ryan Madsen, who Dodger fans are trying to figure out what's going on. He said he did, it was the weather. He couldn't get loose. Do you think it was so much the weather, He just there was something that just didn't click for him last night? Well, he didn't have the grip. He's a changeup pitcher. You got uh, the changeup, of course, is a touch and feel pitch, and he didn't have uh, he didn't have the feeling of his of his changeup out there. So when you saw him come in and face Pierce, he was trying to command the fastball. So not only did he not have the actually, he spiked his changeup in game one, right? And after he spiked that and bounced it, I mean, he kind of had to go to plan two and and throw the fastball to try to get some outs. Consequently, he he got hit and. Uh, those base runners scored. I mean, Kershaw ended up giving up a lot of runs, but really, um, Madsen wasn't able to keep him from scoring. Those were hits, his base hits uh, that that gave him up. So uh, Devers got one through the right side there, and uh, Madsen has been very good, though I've got to say, uh, in the postseason. I, I I'm not really surprised because he's a veteran. He's been through it before. He's still throwing 97. He still has the great changeup. He's healthy now. Um, I was just surprised that he was even available to get to that far um, through August to get to the Dodgers. I thought it was a great pickup. But as the Dodgers used him more and more in September, they saw how good he was doing, that they felt really confident in putting him in high leverage situations. But, you know, if a guy's not loose, I mean, you've got to tell your manager that. I mean, out there in the bullpen, your bullpen coach has to say something. And be honest with Dave Roberts, because then you get Baez or somebody else up in those high leverage situations. But if you're not getting the touch and feel of your best pitch, which is the changeup, I mean, it can cost you the game. And, and that's exactly really what happened. Both of his uh, outings really turned out to be the difference in the game. I mean, a wood home run, obviously, the home run he gave up opened up the game to put it on ice. But in that inning, the innings that Matson came in both games is when the Red Sox took over. Let's talk about David Price from last night. Like I said on WEEI this morning, they were crowning him an MVP of the World Series. Um, I told you that if if the Red Sox got a victory from David Price, they're playing with house money. I thought David Price last night was playing with house money because he was cruising and grooving along. Then he ran into a, a, a little bit of a of a jam, and he was glaring at the umpire. I didn't think he looked sharp. I was surprised that uh, Cora stayed with him as long as he did. I was too. When uh, Freeze and Machado got the back-to-back base hits, you've got to get Chris Taylor out if you're David Price. That's a guy you can't walk. Now, yes, Chris Taylor has power. There's no doubt. Chris Taylor takes three hard swings, and if you hit his spot, you've heard John Smoltz in the broadcast. If you have it on, and you're not uh, putting on the mute button, I know some people are, <laughs> but uh, but John has said it many times throughout the playoffs about that spot that Taylor hits. If you make a mistake in and a little bit down. That's the launch angle path for Taylor. It doesn't change. That's his path. If you make a mistake in there, that's 
uh, he's going to hit it. But that's why he also why he struck out and led the league in strikeouts in the National League because he doesn't really alter it too much. Once in a while, you'll see him make an adjustment and, and take a pitch up and away to right field. But for the most part, especially in this the two games in Boston with that short fence there <clears throat> and, and uh, short distance in left field there, I mean, it looked like he was trying to hit home runs every time up. So, so compare and contrast that. So let's compare and contrast that, Skip. His approach right there versus JD Martinez. When Martinez could be swinging for the downs, but he went the other way in that key moment. Yeah, he did. No, JD Martinez knew he wasn't going to get a pitch to, to turn on and hit out of the ballpark to left field. He hits great power to right center anyway. I remember last year at Dodger Stadium when he was with the D backs, he had four home runs in one game. He hit one to right field, one to right center, one to dead center, and the last one was to left field. Every every part of the ballpark, that's how he hits. So that's part of his game plan anyway, and that's why not only did he hit all the home runs that he hit and drove in 130 runs, um, he hit for a high average. And the the Red Sox do believe in batting average, where a lot of teams don't. They say, oh, it's not important. I know Gabe Kapler has talked about that before at the Phillies. Batting average isn't the key. RBIs aren't the big thing. Well, what what are the big thing then? I think runs batted in are the big thing. I remember Adrian Gonzalez arguing with him on, about that when he heard that. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez said, I prided myself on driving in runs. That's what you're supposed to do as a middle-of-the-order hitter. Well, that's what J.D. Martinez did. And that's why Betts will probably win the MVP in the American League, but J.D. Martinez is certainly going to be a close second. So let's turn the page. Now that we head to Dodger Stadium Friday night, it'll be uh, Porcello versus Bueller. Uh, give me your thoughts as, as we start looking at this game. Well, I, I give the edge to the Dodgers here. I, I think Walker Bueller for me, now I managed eight uh, years in the minor leagues for the Dodgers back in the 80s. I had guys like Ramon Martinez. I had Pedro Martinez my last year in 91 in AAA. I had John Wetland, who was a great starter before we made him a closer. Uh, I'm just naming three of the top prospects in those years. Pedro, by far, I knew was going to be an ace. Uh, I didn't know he was going to be a Hall of Famer in 1991, but I knew he was going to be an ace, and I was involved in trading him to Boston when I was with Dan Duquette, and to Dan's credit, he gives me credit for that, and that was nice of him after he, he let me go <laughs> after 96 season. <laughs> hey, um, thanks but, a lot anyway. But I did help uh, get him to Montreal because I gave Dan all my reports, and so we ended up getting both Wetland one year, Henry Rodriguez later on, Darren Fletcher, a catcher, and then later um, Pedro Martinez uh, to Montreal. And in my reports, that I always kept all of my reports, my scouting reports back in those days, that you have to do a report on every player that you see, both home, <clears throat> your team, and the visitors. And I remember my reports on Pedro, aside from grading him out uh, as, you know, lights out across the board, um, in today's scouting system, it's 50 to 80, 80 being top, 20 being lowest, 50 being major league average. Pedro would have gone 80 across the board. We didn't have that scouting system with the Dodgers then, um, but I won't get into all that because it's a little bit um, uh, lengthy to describe. But the bottom line is he would have been at the top of the charts in his fastball, his changeup, and even his curveball across the board. And then you, you start you, you used to write a, oh, a, a page or two about the player himself, about what you saw, about certain games, about certain quirks the, guys might, the guy might have, uh, what does he do off the field, on the field. And I just I wrote one thing that stood out. His sense of humor really struck me. And I said he really got a great, has a great sense of humor. He was very outspoken, uh, vocal, funny. I said he's a great teammate. He's going to be the whole package. He's going to be a Hall of I didn't say Hall of Famer in my report, but I, I said he's going to be a really 
frontline number one pitcher. My point in saying all that relates to Walker Bueller. I feel the same way about Walker Bueller as I did about Pedro Martinez. Now, I didn't have Walker Bueller, obviously, because I'm a broadcaster now. So I don't know him, the ins and outs of him like I did Pedro. But I think he's the best pitching prospect outside of Clayton Kershaw and Pedro Martinez. I think he's the next one on that list that the Dodgers have developed um, going back to those days of the 80s. I mean, there's been some great ones. Obviously, Fernando was a little bit before that. 81 was his big year. But I'm talking about the years that I was there, and then later when I came back to them. And he's the one that everybody's uh, asked for so far. Every, everybody yeah. who's oh, wanted man. to make a trade, they've all asked for Walker Bueller, thinking, hey, I'm going to pull a fast one on the Dodgers, and the Dodgers have him as untouchable. Well, you know, he went to Vanderbilt, too, and he pitched in big games uh, there, and he talked about that. He said the playoffs to me are like the regionals and pitching in the College World Series. He said it's not uh, really any different as far as the pressure, and he, he thrives on that. And remember, when the draft Dodgers drafted him number one, a lot of teams could have taken him. 27, 28 other mm. teams could have, could have taken him, but, but he was going to have Tommy John surgery after his college season. Everybody knew that. And the Dodgers took a chance and said, we're going to take him number one. He's there. He's on the board. Uh, when he gets back and gets healthy, he's going to be great. And he's actually throwing harder than he did in college. Now he's averaging 98 with the fastball. But not only does he have the fastball and a great curveball, Pretty good slider, good changeup. He's got the four-pitch mix. He's got great command of it, but he's also got that demeanor, just that little, not arrogant, but a little cocky-type edge to him that he knows he's good. And he's he got doesn't swagger. Really, he got a little swagger to him, absolutely. And that's what Pedro had, by the way. Right. So what Pedro had in his day better than, than Bueller was a changeup. Mm. Phenomenal changeup. Always had it. And when you're throwing 98 like Pedro did and the changeup, he could have won 20 games with two pitches, but he also had a great curveball to go with it. And then later developed a little slider slash cutter, whatever. But um, he really was a three-pitch pitcher when I had him. Walker Bueller, to me, is right now fastball, curveball is his second pitch. Really good overhand curve. Slider wasn't that effective against the Brewers. Ryan Braun actually hit one and drove in a run at Dodger Stadium, the game that the Brewers won. Um he drove in a big run when Yelich got on base early with off the slider, and, and Bueller put it in its back pocket. So he, he basically was a two-pitch pitcher that day, fastball curve. That'll be enough for him. If he has command of his fastball and he's got that curveball going, that'll be enough. He'll mix in a changeup. He'll mix in a slider slash cutter. But you'll see a good power fastball. You'll see him try to go up in the zone a lot, a lot, and see how many chases he can get up there. So that's going to be the key for the Red Sox hitters. Can they lay off 98 up uh, at their eyes or up at their shoulders? I, I noticed that even Ryu did it yesterday, and a few of the guys chased it, which surprised me because supposedly the Red Sox don't chase up in the zone too much, but they did a little bit yesterday. Little jumpy going up the ladder. Uh, for Boston, Rick Porcello will throw, and you finally get to see Cody Bellinger, Mac Mun Max Muncy, and Jock Peterson. For me, Rick Porcello is the most unsung Boston Red Sox who just gives you double digits wins. You can count on him to keep you in every ball game. He's not going to be as sexy as Chris Sale and David Price, but man, that guy is blue collar, and, and you'll love to have him in your lineup. Well, he had a great year, and also in the postseason, he's pitched the eighth inning a couple of times. I know against the Yankees, he did that and pitched great. I mean, he was lights out. He wasn't a Nate Evaldi throwing 100 miles an hour, but he had a good command of his fastball when he came in in the eighth inning. So Alex Cora has done a great job using his starters uh, for one inning to get the ball to Kimbrell when he needed to, and Porcello has done that. So when he's on, he's going to have uh, some sink on his ball. He's also got the four-seam fastball. 
pretty good breaking ball, and he's just he has to spot his stuff. That's that's the key there. I heard one analyst today on MLB said it said uh, they're just going to kill. Dodgers are going to kill Porcello. They're going to knock him out. Uh, the game's going to be over within the first few innings. They're just going to knock him all over the place. Maybe they will. I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I agree with you. I think Porcello's the one guy nobody's really talking about. Everybody's talking about Evaldi, which they said, and Price, right. and Sale, but don't forget about Porcello. He's pretty darn he's never, good pitcher, he's too. Never, nobody's ever mentioned him. Oh, I love Rick Porcello. Because no. he's always had someone else sitting there right next to him, yeah. and, and that's why I think uh, I do not ever want to underestimate Rick Porcello. Um, let's talk a little bit about the DH. Uh, now that you're going to lose the DH with Matt Kemping in there, and he's had a yeah. pretty good series so far, and the defense that you're going to lose by putting J.D. Martinez in the field. Well, that's a big difference. Obviously, for the American League, when you lose your DH, you're used to putting uh, J.D. Martinez at DH, which is great, and then you put Betts in right field. It's the best outfield in baseball. Uh, if Betts plays second base, um, it won't be too bad for them. Uh, but Betts, even though he was an infielder before he became a right fielder and center fielder, he was a great infielder. He takes ground balls every day still at second base and at shortstop. So he, he works on that. And as he said, he may be a little nervous early, but you know, once the game sta- starts and he gets that first ground ball, he'll be fine. The only thing I'd be concerned about if I'm Cora it is, is that he's playing on the right side of the field, not, not at shortstop. And he's going to have his back to the Dodgers, especially Machado on double plays. And you'd hate to see somebody you know, try to clip him on purpose and hurt him and, and tear a knee or something. That's the only thing on a double play ball I'm talking about. That's the only thing and I, I'd worry about. And being out of position on shifts, too. I saw Nolan Arenado this summer really on a shift trying to turn a double play. He became the swing guy in the middle, and he had a really awkward throw, Rich, because he was playing uh, on the other side of second base. And when he got the ball, the ball was hit to the right side. And when the second baseman, LeMay, who tried to give it to him, he was in a real awkward position and hurt his shoulder doing that. So if the, And the Red Sox do shift. If they overshift and he's in a strange position, that could be a problem too. So that's the only thing I would worry about. But, um, again, he's a great athlete. He's not worried about it. So if that's the way they go, I don't know if that's the way they go. They may go bets in center field and sit Jackie Bradley Jr., tomorrow against uh, but you know if you do that you're losing a left-handed power bat against uh, Walker Bueller and you know Bradley's going to see all lefties in this series except for for Bueller if he doesn't start tomorrow so that's a tough call for me does bet attendee sit I don't know he's he's he hits lefties and righties that's a tough guy to take out I think Ben attendee's going to lead a league in hitting someday I think he's that type of hitter reminds me a little bit of Billy Buckner the former Dodger right who Tommy Lasorda said I one, noticed you said one day, Dodger not Red Sox yeah, former Dodger. Well, he was a Dodger first, came up with Lasorda. Right, well, the Red Sox and, fans don't want to hear you say Billy Buckner, well, former Red is, Sox yeah, right this, now. Is, this is a podcast for both. We've been talking a lot about the Red Sox. So, um, Buckner, but he reminds me of that. And, and I remember Tommy Lasorda talking about him when I was a kid. He said, Billy Buckner someday is going to be a batting champ. He's that type of hitter. He uses the field. He's got some power. Um, he's got a gray eye at the plate. And that's what Ben Attendee reminds me of. Yeah, later, of course, he went to the Cubs and then, and then he went to the Red Sox, and I think it was with the Cubs when Buckner finally did win a batting title. But I think Ben Attendee has that type of look at the plate, that type of eye, short swing, goes line to line. I like his swing path. I think he's the type of guy. Uh, he doesn't overly uppercut. Um, I think he's the type of guy, to me, that he's going to – and being left-handed always helps winning batting titles just for the advantage of being closer to first base and having a first baseman hold the guys on and – Having that hole over there, I think Ben Attendee's that good that someday he's going to 
win a batting title. But um, I think the key to this game three is um, really is Bueller shutting them down and Dodgers getting on the board early because if the Dodgers get on the board board early in game three, Dave Roberts will really, really manage with urgency. And I think he will give his reliever a chance to make a mistake. I don't think he'll wait till the bases are loaded and nobody out if Bueller for some reason gets wild. Because once in a while, Bueller can shut you down. And then Rich, sometimes all of a sudden in, in uh, an inning, he might walk two in a row and lose his fastball. And sometimes it's because he's overthrowing a little bit. And he doesn't need to. He throws an easy 98. Really fluid delivery. just explodes. Explodes. Absolutely. Not a lot of moving parts to his delivery. Very fluid. Good mechanics. There's not a lot of huffing and puffing. The ball just jumps out of his hand, and I think he can dominate tomorrow. But, again, the Red Sox are a short swing team. They don't have the long swings that Milwaukee had and that the Braves had. They are much shorter with their swings, and so they're going to have to do that Friday night, tomorrow night, um, to get some runs off of Bueller. Okay, uh, what are you expecting from Dodger Stadium, the Dodger fans? It'll be 35 degrees warmer. Nobody's going to have to have hand warmers, gloves, or uh, stocking caps. I expect Rob Lowe and George Lopez to be out there with huge flags. One guy will be on one dugout. One guy will be on the other, uh, waving the Dodger flag, getting the crowd going. That's what they did last year. I think uh, they're two huge Dodger fans. I think it's going to be a a Hollywood uh, entertainment (laughs) type thing going on tomorrow night uh, for sure. I know people may not want to hear that, but that's what L.A. is, and that's what the Dodgers are, and they embrace uh, their celebrities that come out and that are Dodger fans. But – and I'm not kidding when I said that. That's what they did last year. Those guys were on each dugout. So, um, but besides that, the everyday fan that comes out there every day and maybe pays, you know, whatever the price is to sit up top and pay five bucks or eight bucks or ten. I think it's ten bucks today, something like that. Um, those fans are going to be electric. I mean, they are. They're diehard fans. The Dodger fans are really good. I mean, the average what forty-seven, and the, the place holds fifty-five thousand. And there's going to be 55,000 on a Friday night. No doubt about it. Absolutely. It's going to be a sellout tomorrow and Saturday. And The tickets, I think, are more expensive at Dodger Stadium. The demand's higher than they were at Fenway Park. So I want to leave with this, Kevin. Yeah. Because you wore both uniforms. So this is yeah. almost the Kevin Kennedy World Series, right? It's a little weird for me. Yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, it's in a good way. Yeah. Because because I know both places. I'm born in L.A., grew up a Dodger fan, was a Dodger, and now I'm a Dodger again. So it's kind of – it's great for me being back, which is at the final third of my career, I'll say, uh, to, to kind of simulate what uh, Kirk Gibson said. He's in the final, uh, you know, third of his life. And I don't mean that from a mortality standpoint. I'm just saying – you know, You've I'm, seen I'm it not. All. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I've done pretty much everything I've wanted and, and to that's do. That's why I, I want to ask you this. That's why I want to. I love to keep. I'd love to keep working as long as Vince Scully, if I can, God willing. But <laughs> um, point is, I, I think in this game, both from a broadcasting side and a and a uh, in the uniform side, I've I've really done everything I wanted to do so far, and I'm blessed that I'm doing the broadcasting now. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, and, and we've talked about this before on the satellite and here on the podcast, you have almost, I think you have all the jerseys that you had throughout your career. I do. Man- managing. So I'm going to ask you to pull that Red Sox jersey down off the wall, put that uh, blue cap on with the scarlet B on the, on the front, and talk to Red Sox fans for 30 seconds and tell them what they need to know right now as they get ready for game five. Well, I can't pull it off the wall because uh, my family uh, a few years ago gave me a present. They took my jersey, number 44, um, both the home and then the bat, the road jersey, um, 
the name on the back and, they, and in the front, of course, with my number and both the gray and the white uniform top. And they put them behind a huge square piece of glass and framed it. And they had me sign it, uh, 1995 uh, Eastern Division champions, and that I was the manager of the Red Sox in 95-96. So I can't get it off the wall. It's huge in my baseball office where I do my, or I'm doing this show right now. Um, it's in my baseball office slash studio. So I can't take it off the wall. But um, uh, and, and to answer your question, asking me the question again, because I was getting into the description of, <laughs> of I, was, I was thinking of how am I going to get that thing You were off the reminiscing wall. <laughs> on how wonderful it was, I, I was to be the manager of the Red Sox. So if well, you got well, a chance, was, yeah. it, th- well, listen, it was a great time. Um, if you, Especially winning a division. I, I mean, they can't take that away from me. When you no win a division what. there or win a world championship, they put you on the horses, the police horses. It's not. I mean, if, if I still have the vivid memory of Mo Vaughn in 1995 riding a police horse, <laughs> and, and they got him up there somehow. Way before and, Wade Boggs did it in in uh, New York. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. Clemens got up there. The guys took me, Clemens and John Valentin and Mo Vaughn and Tim Wakefield. They grabbed me and made me get on the horse. And there was nothing <laughs> quite like that feeling. I can tell you the date. It was September, September the 20th of 1995. We clinched the division of the American League East when we were picked to finish fourth and the Yankees were picked to finish first. We beat the Yankees by eight games that year and won the division going away. And there was no feeling like it but to manage there. And, and win the American League East in a very tough division. So, uh, But then you had to go on and, and do more. But uh, that memory is vivid in my, in my thoughts. And that's what these Red Sox guys want to do, and that's what they will do if it goes back to Fenway and they happen to win in a, a World Series Which there. they're going to. They're going to win in seven. That was my call. You said Dodgers in seven. Um, but just for, just for a second, talk to, talk to the Sox fans that are listening to us. Uh, give them a little bit of, of a flavor of what you think they should be thinking right now. Well, I like, first of all, what the players are thinking and what Alex Cora is thinking. Um, I, the word that really has come across to me throughout these playoffs and throughout the season is humble. And one line or one paragraph, however you want to say it, that Alex Cora said to his team that has really stuck with me all season in, in today's environment in baseball is that hitting 30 home runs and striking out 180 times and hitting 200 is unacceptable on his ball club. That's not the way we're going to play the game. And I love that. And I'm paraphrasing when I say that. I mean, he might have said 210. I don't know. Batting average. But but point being, they are a team that plays small ball. They will hit and run. They'll steal bases. They'll go the other way. Um, they'll, they, can, they can hit multiple base hits. And, and, that, and they can create base runners and put havoc on the, on, and turn that lineup over, you know, several times by doing that. And they have to have the same approach tomorrow night uh, against Walker Bueller. They can't get too big on Bueller or he'll have a no-hitter going through five and they'll blow him away. He'll blow him away. Now for the Dodger fans that are stuck in traffic on their way to the game listening to us, what do you say to them? Well, the Dodger word that uh, sticks out for me and watching every single pitch this year, um, especially after the 16-26 and 26 start, resiliency. Very resilient club. They never get down. Uh, they were down 16 to 26 and I never saw, and in nine games out, I never saw anybody down quarter of the season through. They were never down when Corey Seager was out for the year with Tommy John surgery. They didn't get down. They just next man up, Max Muncie, come on up, join the parade hit 35 home runs. That's what they'll do, uh, tomorrow night. They're very resilient and they've got young guys that aren't afraid. Cody Bellinger is going to get a start. Not afraid. Jack Peterson is going to get a start. Not afraid. 
Muncie getting a chance of a lifetime to resurrect his career with the Dodgers this year. He's not afraid. I saw him hit a 102 fastball off a lefty this year to left field for a base hit. Uh, or a right, excuse me, Jordan Hicks of the Cardinals. And I went, wow, uh, how do you catch up with that? So they got guys that can catch up with 100-mile-an-hour fastballs. <clears throat> That's why you saw Evaldi and, and Joe Kelly and some of these guys start these hitters off with breaking balls, curveballs, to get them off the fastball. They know the Dodgers can hit fastballs. If if the Red Sox and Porcello can use the secondary stuff, Dodgers are going to have to look for that. If his secondary stuff is working, they can't just hit fastballs tomorrow. But resiliency is the key. And, and for them and for Dodger fans, they've got to shorten some swings up and be a little bit more like Matt Kemp's swing. Matt Kemp has a really short swing. You, you see how he hit that 94 fastball the other day? He didn't even, doesn't even stride. He just uses his hands, his legs, obviously. Is that two-strike approach? He's got a two-strike approach, and that's why he hit a two-strike home run off of Chris Sale. That's what you got to take Turner's lead. Best maybe two-strike approach um, in baseball. I mean, you might say Mookie Betts is there with him and all that, but Justin Turner certainly is right at the top as far as two-strike hitters for me. He has the best two-strike approach I've seen in the National League this year. That's what the other Dodgers have to follow tomorrow night against Porcello to create multiple base runners in an inning. That's why so many of the Dodgers' home runs were solo this year. A lot of them were solo because a lot of guys are just going for the downs. But with men on, and you know, they didn't have the type of innings where they would go base it, base it, base it, base it. 2017, they did that. They just passed the baton. Tomorrow, if they want to win against Porcello, they have to have those type of at-bats to pass the baton and have multiple base hits in, in a couple of innings to win the game. Put him under duress. All right, that's going to do it for the podcast for today. Don't forget, if you want to tweet to Kevin, uh, I know I'm going to be tweeting back and forth with him, and you can as well. Kevin Kennedy, MLB is his Twitter handle. Mine is RBI Rich. So we'll see if the Dodgers could get on the winning side of the ledger. Game three coming up at Dodger Stadium. Thanks for joining us for America's Best Baseball Podcast. Our podcast was produced by Braden Suppernant. Find us on Facebook at America's Best Baseball Podcast. You can find Kevin at Kevin Kennedy. MLB on Twitter, and you can find Rich on Twitter at RBI Rich. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.